to the National Treasure Hunt podcast, where the secret lies not only with Charlotte, but also with your co-hosts. I'm Aubrey. And I'm Emily. And no pressure for us, Em, but this is, I feel like, a big episode for us. Do you know why? No. Why? (laughs) Okay, well, (laughs) Emily, maybe you weren't paying that much attention to our Twitter in the off-season of our show, but for those of you who were paying attention, we ran a bracket to determine which episode from season one was everyone's favorite, and the episode on the first film's fact versus fiction was the winner. Ah, yes, it's coming back to me now. I do remember that. Also because I voted in that. (laughs) Oh, good. I'm glad. Well, hopefully you voted for that one. I did. Okay, I was going to say, or you'd be in the minority. Um, But today, it's a high-pressure scenario because we're basically making that episode again with respect to National Treasure 2 Book of Secrets. So we're going to be doing all of the hard work behind pulling out key historical points that are made throughout the plot of Book of Secrets and telling you whether they're based in fact or in fiction. So, um, I don't know, Em, this seems like it could be a long episode, much like a lot of our episodes lately. I don't know. Are they getting longer? They're just getting longer and longer. It's fine. I don't know whether that's because we're getting more verbose or more excited I'm going to choose to believe it's the latter. Mm-hmm. Sure. <laughs> Whatever the case, I know it's not making your job any easier when you edit the episodes together. So thank you for your service. Of course. Um, okay. Well, in the interest of time, then, before we get started, um, why don't you give our customary social media shout out? Because there's definitely some stuff in this episode today that I feel like our listeners are going to want to talk about. You can find us on social media, Twitter and Instagram at NT Hunt Podcast. You can find us for your listening ears on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or if you want to be a little more hipster about it, you can go to SoundCloud and take a listen. Please, on any of those platforms, whatever form you can do it in, subscribe, rate, review us. We love to hear from you. And yes, as Aubrey said, We do want to have conversations with you guys about this, especially because I have to say, Aubrey and I have done our homework here, but we are not historians. And I know that some of you listening are because we have talked to you. That's true. So if you have something to tell us, let us know. If you have more questions, let us know. And there are probably going to be some posts, at least for some of the areas that I cover. I'm not sure about Aubrey, but some posts to some pictures, as well as some websites that you guys can check out as well. So you'll want to be following us on Twitter and or Instagram or both, really, for that information. Yeah, and speaking of everything you just said, Emily, I don't know about you, but general observation, when I was researching for this episode, I found it way harder to find a lot of these historical points referenced online than I did when we were doing this for movie one. Do you agree? I do. You know, I have a theory. I feel like they used up a lot of their really good plot points in the first movie. And in the second movie, not to say that they're not good plot points, they definitely are. But I feel like they really had to like pull into the history banks for these and make some, as we will see, very tenuous connections uh okay. to real real life so i think i think that might have been what's what happened 
All right, well, if that didn't whet your appetite enough, <laughs> let's dive right into this. Just as a reminder, if you haven't listened to season one, episode two in a little while, the way we're going to break this episode down is we picked a handful of topics that we're going to go into some more depth on and we'll lead off the episode with that we'll give you the movie context so that we're all on the same page god knows emily needs it no literally when she was doing her research she made me fill in the movie context <laughs> section of her points i swear i am credit i am qualified to be a host of this <laughs> guys i hope that i make up for it with my humor and enthusiasm for all things even the movie even if my memory is that of a goldfish, as Kristen Russo would say. Well, okay, after that movie context, which again is all me, then we will go into what actually happened in history, followed by answering the ultimate question, is it fact or is it fiction? After we go through our in-depth round, we'll finish off with our speed round. These are points that, let's be honest, they were just a little bit less interesting to me and Emily. (laughs) (laughs) And again, we have a time limit sort of here. So you you get what you get. We have our full round and then our speed round. And then you guys get to ask us your questions. So without further ado, let's jump into topic number one, which I assigned to Emily since she had so much fun talking about Ottendorf Cyphers last season. Yes. This time around, she's going to tell us about the Playfair Cypher. And in case you forgot... In the opening scene of National Treasure 2, Book of Secrets, Thomas Gates is asked by, who we find out later to be John Wilkes Booth and his counterpart, to decode a Playfair cipher written into what we also now know is the infamous Booth Diary. Of course, later on in the movie, we're not going to get into detail on this, I don't think, right now, but later on we learn that, in the movie anyway, this cipher was sent by Queen Victoria to Confederate General Albert Pike to hopefully lead the Confederacy to Cibola. So, Emily, what can you tell us about Playfair ciphers? Well, guys, Playfair ciphers, in case you missed it, are ciphers. Just getting that one out there. The first recorded description of the ciphers was actually very distinctly dated as March 26th, 1854. Now, guys, these ciphers were invented by Charles Wheatstone, awesome name, who was a scientist an inventor in the Victorian era. Now, these ciphers were made for secrecy and telegraphs, basically, as many ciphers were. When we talked about the Ottendorf ciphers, that was also the case. So, as you might have noticed, I said these were invented by Charles Wheatstone. However, they're called Playfair ciphers. So wherefore is the mention of the name of the inventor, Aubrey? I will tell you. Are you Shakespeare now? Yes. Wherefore, Art Wheatstone? I My life has changed since season one. Okay. Good to know. Um, its use was actually promoted by good old pal Lord Playfair, who is the first Baron Playfair of St. Andrews, which is in Scotland. So he gets the naming credit. So originally, the cipher was actually thought to be too complex by the British Foreign Office, which is laughable now because it's actually thought to be one of the easier ciphers to decode. Um, In an effort to get it used, Charles Wheatstone offered to have a set of like four schoolboys try to decode one of the ciphers. And the British Foreign Office was like, no, 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 you can't do that. 
So they didn't do that. But these ciphers were used for tactics by the British in the Second Boer War and in World War One, as well as by the British and the Australians in World War Two. Now, the good thing about these ciphers, Aubrey, is that they are fast to use and no special equipment is required, unlike other ciphers, unless you count a pencil and a paper as special equipment, which you could in this day and age, who knows? Basically, what you need for this cipher is a 5x5 table that you fill in with letters of the alphabet. You drop the J and make it an I, and sometimes you drop out the Q. Why? We're not quite sure. Now, there are a bunch of rules to the substitution scheme that is used. In the interest of everyone's mental health and their brains not exploding, I'm not going to try to explain them to you. Instead, I am going to direct you to a website wherein you can find the details, a very clear explanation of the cipher, and you can make your own cipher. So guys, the website is rumkin.com. And there are some slashes with extra stuff after that. We're going to go ahead and we're going to post that on our Twitter feed along with this episode so that you guys can go and understand the cipher and make your own. Okay, guys. And fun fact, in 1943, before JFK was even the president of the United States, he used a Playfair cipher. Yes, JFK was in the Navy and saw in the distant water a set of flames that he then had to report was a boat that he suspected was on fire. So I say that's a fun fact because I really like JFK and I read a biography on him in grade school because I was that cool of a kid. Also, it was for a project. So... So one of the reasons that, as I mentioned, this is actually a cipher that's kind of easy to decode is because, for example, if you have in your cipher the letters AB and BA, they're likely going to decrypt to a similar letter pattern in the plain text or what you're trying to find out the cipher is saying. So in this case, the AB could be RE and the BA could be ER. So that kind of gives you a hint then. You can start to figure out what the letters are and figure out the scheme a little more quickly. And the problem is that in English, there are a lot of words that have that kind of pattern in them at the beginning and the end. So examples that I saw were like the word receiver and the word departed why you would necessarily use those exact words in a text that you were trying to encode, I don't know, but well, it makes it easier to solve. Obviously, they need to code words about football. Maybe that's maybe it's Playfair ciphers that the quarterbacks are screaming on the field when they're play calling. Oh, yes, yes. Blue 42, Emily. Mm-hmm. She says as if she knows <laughs> something about football. Um, For a second, I don't... Have... <laughs> no, me, me. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. I had to hope that you were referring to soccer. Oh my gosh. Well, okay, well, I think we have a bit of a grasp on Playfair ciphers now. So, Emily, let's go back to the film. Was the use of a Playfair cipher in this context more like fact or more, more like fiction? Well, 
I can answer this on multiple levels, Aubrey. So the timing definitely fits. John Wilkes Booth was around from 1838 to 1865. So the timing of when the cipher was used definitely corresponds. Also, there was mention of a code word in the movie itself. And in some variations of this Playfair cipher, I have seen instances where a code word was used to fill out this 5x5 table. Once again, I will point you to further sources for reading more descriptions of that. Now, what is really, really interesting to me, and I'm really happy that I found this, is that it seems like in his room, John Wilkes Booth left a page on which was contained the Viganaire table. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong because there were some accents in some different places, so I apologize in advance for that. And this is going along with a cipher of the same name. This was a commonly used cipher by Confederate troops. Important point there. So people claim that this is a direct tie to John Wilkes Booth and the Confederacy, saying that the Confederacy actually sanctioned Lincoln's assassination. But in reality, when you think about it, it was really just a table. It wasn't the cipher itself. So it's not like they found this, like, intense cipher in his room. They just found a table that was used for decoding ciphers. So being in possession of this table didn't actually make this connection between John Wilkes Booth and the Confederacy as strong as some people seem to think it is. So when it comes to the use of the Playfair cipher by John Wilkes Booth, in history, it seems like it's probably not true, because if he was using a cipher, it was likely going to be the Wiener cipher. However, it seems that this, was, this fact in the movie was probably inspired by a true story that had to do with finding this table in John Wilkes Booth's room. Very interesting. Huh. I feel like I have so many more questions, but it's really... This is one of those finds that I'm really glad you made. It reminds me of some of the finds we had back in season one's fact versus fiction episode, <laughs> for sure. Okay, awesome. Um, Emily, I think you're taking on the second of our deep dive topics as well, which is the Knights of the Golden Circle or the KGC. So next up here, in the context of the film, as you probably recall, the guys who hand Thomas Gates the cipher who, again, John Wilkes Booth and some other dude, they are from the Knights of the Golden Circle, the KGC. And in that flashback scene, Thomas Gates himself knows that the KGC are considered traitors. And then we later learn, when we, when we flash forward to present day, Ben Gates tells us that the KGC was a Southern extremist group operating in the North during the Civil War. So, Emily, is that true? What's going on here? So in real life, guys, this actually was a secret society that existed in the mid-19th century in the U.S. It was founded by George W.L. Bickley. He was a doctor, editor, and self-proclaimed adventurer in Cincinnati. Now, he organized the first civil branch, also known as a castle, fun fact, in 1854. He claimed membership of this group was over 100,000 people at his highest point, but in reality, people think it was probably only about half of that. 
The original goal of the group was to annex what they referred to as a golden circle of territories in Mexico and the Caribbean slave states with the purpose of keeping this slaveholding territory. So big boo on that. Yes, Aubrey. Okay, on a lighter note, am I the only one who keeps hearing Golden Circle and is thinking of the Kingsman movies? You know, that thought just occurred to me as I started speaking, but I haven't actually seen those movies. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I love them. And also heard that they might be making, like, a whole bunch more. But Mm -hmm. story for another day. Anyway, not the same Golden Circle. Uh, Yeah, it doesn't seem like it. This this, uh, group had three categories of members, much like many secret societies have different categories for their members. They had a military wing, which was all about the conquesting. They had a financial wing, which was all about those dollar-dollar bills, y'all. And they had a governing wing, which did government-related things. Now, in the Civil War, there were Southern sympathizers in the Union and Northern states, such as Ohio, Illinois, Indiana, and Iowa. And they were actually accused of being KGC. Now, members of President James Buchanan's administration were actually known members of the KGC. So they were up there in some really high important places. Some of these people include Secretary of War, John Floyd, the Secretary of the Treasury, Howell Cobb, and Vice President himself, John Breckinridge, all members of the KGC. Pretty intense. Now, when Lincoln became president, the KGC changed its plans, its goal, basically, over to providing support for Southern states' secession plans from the Union. Now, they were doing bad things all over the South. They were taking over territories and federal arsenals. There is a bunch of history there. They were doing some bad stuff. But the group became strong in the North among people who were Democrats who wanted to end the Civil War by settling with the South. Some of them supported slavery, but others were just worried about the power of the federal government and were about to do anything they could to help to stave off this uh, grasp of power. Now, this group reorganized in 1863 as the Order of American Knights, and yet a year later, in 1864, became the Order of the Sons of Liberty. Seems like they were having some identity issues as they changed their names so quickly in such a (laughs) short period of time. Now, Aubrey, big question. Is this fact or fiction? Now... From the early days of the formation of the KGC, John Wilkes Booth was supposedly a member. So it does seem possible that, you know, in the movie, this could have been true. There was evidence of him and others concentrated around the Baltimore and Washington area who were helped by other members of the KGC in a failed plot to kidnap the president and in the assassination So what I have to say here is that it's honestly unclear if this situation was true, but it is likely based off of a conspiracy theory that currently exists. So a man named David C. Keene has a book that's called The Knights of the Golden Circle, 
Secret Empire, Southern Secession, Civil War. Very succinct title there. And in that book, he is the one who makes this claim that John Wilkes Booth and others were helped by the KGC in their plot to kidnap the president and ultimately to assassinate him. However, a review written by W.J. Wallace, who is a professor of history, argues that these claims are not actually well supported. So while there is some evidence that this could be the case, it seems like the claims are merely circumstantial in nature. And we can direct you to both of those readings. They seem very interesting if you guys want even more information about this. Okay, so let's... Let's take this one step further. And in the film, John Wilkes Booth isn't necessarily a member of the KGC himself, but he's working with someone who is. We only see the KGC pin on the guy who stays behind while Booth goes to actually perform the assassination. Could this be an example of that lightly evidenced possible conspiracy theory thing where Booth was being helped by the KGC? For sure. I think that's definitely possible, which is why I said, yeah, exactly. Which is why it's hard to determine if this is actually completely true or not. It seems like it's probably based in something. Interesting. Well, the KGC was real. We can, we can say that much. Yes. We, we know <laughs> that. And John Wilkes Booth was probably a member. And he was real. And he also, yes, was a real person. Imagine that. Oh my gosh. Guys, we just made the biggest breakthrough in this podcast. Fact or fiction? Fact. John Wilkes Booth did exist. Is a real person. Was a real person. So, Aubrey, I think you are the one who is covering our next fact or fiction topic. Now, guys, Aubrey is going to tell us a little bit about Chinese puzzle boxes. So if you'll remember in the movie, the Resolute Desk in the Queen's Study had an engraving on it that read Malcolm Gilvery, 1880. Now, Riley tells them, Riley, of course he tells them, he's the best, that Gilvery made Chinese puzzle boxes. And as a result, they actually realized that the four drawers of the desk work like tumblers of a safe for that really fun scene where they're laying under the desk and playing with the drawers. And a series of secret panels must be turned and pushed until a secret drawer is revealed to contain a wooden plank. Now, Aubrey, I have to say this is probably my favorite part of the movie. So a lot is resting on this fact or fiction. Was it true or not? Okay, no pressure here. I was actually really curious about this one for two reasons. First and foremost, what is up with these puzzle boxes? And second, who is Malcolm Gilvery, right? Mm -hmm. So these are the two aspects of this topic that I wanted to dive into. I am going to start with the puzzle box part part of this. So puzzle boxes, you might have seen one before. They're intricate boxes that will only open if a series of very specific mechanical movements, let's say, are performed in some sequential order. So this is like sliding panels or turning and twisting pieces, etc. And theoretically, only the owner of the box knows that sequence of pushes and pulls and twists and turns. It's like bop it. Right. It's like <laughs> historical bop it. Um, so because the owner, in theory, only knows how to do it, it makes the box fairly 
good for safekeeping unless of course you think about the fact that you could probably smash it on the ground which we actually see pop culture crossover here in an episode of the big bang theory when if anyone's a fan out there you might recall a scene where i guess it's sheldon's puzzle box he's storing something in that box and he needs penny to get the thing out of the box. He's trying to describe to her, oh, move this two millimeters, move that one millimeter, and she's looking at it and she just smashes it on the ground, which is kind of funny. Anyway, back to history. It's said that the idea for puzzle boxes came from jewelry boxes and furniture that had hidden compartments, which were commonplace as early as the Renaissance days. Now, when it comes to searching for Chinese puzzle boxes specifically, I think what we're actually leaning towards here, especially in terms of historical prevalence, are Japanese puzzle boxes, which are probably one of the most common. Now, the modern type of Japanese puzzle box began appearing in what I'm going to pronounce as the Hakone region of Japan. So sorry if I did that one wrong. It's near Tokyo. And they started popping up around 1860. And these were originated as a way for people traveling in carriages to protect their belongings from basically thieves who might try to rob them while they're on the road. Hmm. Yeah, so some somewhere along the line here, they became popular tourist items, including during the World Wars when soldiers would bring them home for their family members from the war when they were in Japan. Now, the reason, Emily, I say you might have seen them before is they have a pretty unmistakable appearance. If you Google Japanese puzzle box, this might look very familiar to you. They have these really intricate geometric designs on the outside made of different types of wood where the different types of wood are specially selected because of the different colors they are. So they're really pretty. And it typically takes anywhere between four to six of these intricate movements to open the actual box. I, too, have a fun fact to share with you, Emily. Yes. And that fun fact is that apparently the largest number of movements recorded for opening one of these boxes is 1,536. What? Yeah, that's nuts, right? Because if they have to be done in this order, it's kind of like you trying to count to 1,000 and you get to like 982 and then I distract you and you mess up. So you have to start all over again. Oh my gosh, that sounds like such a stressful operation. <laughs> you know, right? Something else that's pretty stressful is that there are currently only nine puzzle box masters in Japan. So that original art form, um, if it is not continuously passed down, um, could could be threatened. But I guess the good news is that puzzle boxes are now made all around the world, not just in that region. Now, when it comes to starting to think about the fact versus fiction part of this, I think it's really important to to keep years and, and temporal and chronology in mind. Something I know you don't love, Emily, but I'm going to force us to do it. <laughs> um, it's important to realize that the earliest puzzle boxes appearing for entertainment or souvenirs outside of Japan were actually in Switzerland and... Victorian England mm. in the 19th century. So you'll see why that becomes important, right, Em? Yeah. Because where did we find in the film this, you know, 
puzzle box inspired desk in Queen Victoria's desk. So this is all to say that puzzle boxes are a legit thing. They are temporally accurate when it comes to Queen Victoria. But what about Malcolm Gilvery, right? This is where you know how I mentioned at the, at the top of the episode that I found researching this episode to be a little challenging? <laughs> Here's an example of that. My Googling prowess was not able to unearth a Malcolm Gilvery outright in history, you know, especially not one related to puzzle boxes. Huh. At least not one with enough notoriety that would be easily found online, okay? Huh. Many National Treasure fans on the internet have wondered if he was real, though. That's one of the top things you'll find when you're searching for him. <laughs> but what I did find in lieu of that was that the family name Gilvery, which comes in many iterations, actually originated in your one of your favorite locations, Emily, Scotland. Amazing. And, and there are records of Gilveries existing in Europe in the 1800s. Hmm. So... Factor fiction, M. I'm going to say it's slightly unclear, but let's say it's fiction based on fact, right? I can go with that. The 1880 on the Resolute desk next to the name Malcolm Gilvery is temporally accurate considering the advent and the popularity of puzzle boxes at the time in both Asia and Europe. So that's great. And uh, Malcolm Gilvery might have existed in England given his Scottish roots, though no easily obtainable record of his existence could be unearthed during this search. Wow, Aubrey, that, you know, I have to say you, you did it justice. Um, thank you. I was I was very concerned about where that fact or fiction was going to lead us. But thank you so much for doing that. And the Scottish touch was so perfect for Just me. Just for you. Now, I think you're going to tell us about Cibola and Esteban next. Now, if for those of you who don't remember, probably like me, Patrick translates a single glyph, only one, on the wooden plank that they found in this desk as Cibola, the city of gold. Ben then goes and reads from a history book the story of Cibola, now, the story is, in 1527, a Spanish ship wrecked on the coast of Florida. Supposedly, there were four survivors, including a slave named Esteban, who saved a local tribe's dying chief. As a reward, Esteban was shown their city of gold, which he could never find again. Now, Aubrey, this is also one of my favorite parts of this movie. <laughs> so please enlighten us. Is this fact or is this fiction? So this story is a reference to Esteban de Durantes, known to history as many different names, Esteban, Estevan, Estevanico. Long story short, he was the Moroccan slave of Andres Durantes, the captain of the Narvaez expedition in 1527. Esteban actually became the first African explorer of North America. 
Okay. So this Spanish mission that Esteban was on left Santo Domingo with hundreds of passengers intending to build settlements in Spanish Florida. So this is, you might see it on Wikipedia or online as La Florida. (laughs) (laughs) Um, This is not just what we think of as Florida today, guys. That's actually really important to this story. It includes modern Florida as well as most of the coast of the southeastern United States. So storms at sea forced this expedition to land at modern-day St. Petersburg, Florida, where, long story short, there's lots of detail we could go into here, a lot of bad decisions were made, and they basically lost their ships. So (laughs) that's straight to the point. Um, So because those bad decisions were made and they lost all their ships, the group basically built some tiny boats, like barges, to sail west towards modern-day Texas. But they run into some more bad luck because they end up shipwrecked on the modern-day Texas barrier islands. So some of these folks on this mission survived, but they were enslaved by local tribes. Eek, right? Mm-hmm. Eventually, some time passes, only Esteban and three others have survived. That group of four escaped captivity in 1534 and trekked throughout the southwestern United States and northwestern Mexico. Um, something I found really interesting here, you might wonder, well, they were enslaved before, why weren't they just enslaved again? Yeah. Well, they in their travels, they basically performed as medicine men so they were actually welcomed by a variety of tribes smart right um so just for context because i want to make sure everyone understands what this trek actually entailed if you were looking at a map today this basically included the entire current u.s mexico border and then going down the coast of western Mexico until reaching modern-day Mexico City in the year 1536. So this was a years-long journey. Um, And these, these years really gave Esteban a ton of experience getting to know the languages and cultures of native people throughout that region. Um, So when he and his other three travelers reached a Spanish settlement in 1536, part of what they shared about their journey was a bunch of stories told to them by natives. And those stories were about cities of gold located in the north. But the story does not end here, Emily. Oh, good. Yes. So... Esteban was still a slave here. He was sold to the Viceroy of New Spain, who then tasked him with accompanying Marcos de Niza on an expedition to find Cibola. I mean, he talked it up, right? Mm-hmm. Interestingly enough, Esteban's job was to travel ahead of Deniza and the full crew so that he could learn from the locals and send back messages about how close they were to finding Cibola. And a fun fact, the way they communicated was by Esteban leaving behind crosses. And Mm -hmm. if he left behind a a large cross, that meant that he found major info. All right. So this is like trending on Twitter level info. (laughs) If he left behind a small cross, it was minor. This is like local newspaper level info. You feel me? Mm -hmm. Okay. So After 
Deniza received a cross from Esteban that was literally the size of a human person in the year 1539, Deniza gets all excited, he hurries ahead, and he learns very quickly from the Native American guides that had been accompanying Esteban that unfortunately Esteban had been killed at or near Cibola in present-day New Mexico by a tribe called the Zuni. Now, these Native American guides had not witnessed Esteban's death. They only assumed that he had been killed when there was, like, a ton of arrow fire and, like, most other people died. So, like, Esteban probably did, too. Yeah. Makes sense. But so, it is unknown to this day whether Esteban was killed and if he was, why it happened. Mm -hmm. There, There are a lot of theories But even so, just to wrap up the story, Denise reported that he saw the Golden City, he saw Cibola in the distance, uh, but that he didn't approach it for fear of being killed himself. And so that is what caused an entirely, probably too large, subsequent expedition by someone in history you might recognize, Francisco Vasquez de Coronado, to try to find Cibola, and he only found a city of Pueblos. So that's the story. Wow, that was that was a real that that was a roller coaster of a story already. I have to say. Yeah, I mean, did your emotions feel it? I hope they did. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know what you're wondering: fact or fiction? Well, cut to the chase. This in the film of National Treasure Two is mostly fact. You know, some of the details were left out of Benjamin Gates' story for conciseness. I imagine, um, otherwise, the book, the history book he was reading from in the movie, was wildly lacking detail. However, the part about Esteban healing a chief that shows up in Ben's story is not really a part of known history explicitly. But then you could remember that he and his companions were sort of being medicine men, so it's possible. Also, Esteban wasn't shown the City of Gold, but rather he was told about it by the tribes. And it's true that upon trying to seek out the City of Gold himself later on, he didn't actually find it. Or did he? We don't know. Just for the record, Aubrey is making her quote-unquote devious face right now. So. I mean- we uh we don't know. I just feel it's important to to point that out because maybe there is a national treasure yet to be found, Emily. One can hope, Aubrey. Yeah. You know what okay. there is left to be found? A national treasure of three. That's so true. I am so glad you mentioned that. We always, always take every opportunity to do so. Um, okay. Well, that's the story of Cibola and Esteban. Next up on our list, actually, I think plays off of this nice you're going to tell us a little bit about the Olmec because in National Treasure 2 Book of Secrets, spoiler alert, it's really the Olmec tribe that is being associated with Cibola. Because recall, Ben's mom starts reading the glyphs on the wooden planks. She says that the glyphs on the wooden planks are Olmec symbols. And then we find out later in the film that those glyphs lead to our protagonist's discovery of Cibola in the Black Hills in present-day South Dakota, which, of course, you know, that cavern they find filled with much more Olmec writing and relics. So, I'm really curious about this, Emily. I feel a little skeptical. You heard me in the first episode of this season question how Esteban got from Florida to South Dakota by this tribe. So, I already have some skepticism. 
I have a feeling you're going to prove my skepticism right. What can you tell me here? Spoiler alert. As is common in many of our episodes where we do fact or fiction, whether it be history or science-based, most of the things that I research end up not being true. You also so, take them very literally. I do take them very <laughs> literally. But this one, this one I actually found a blog post online with basically like debunking like straight up just point by point debunking this. I, I may have taken some helpful uh, tips from from that website. Hey, maybe we should share that blog post as well on Twitter. That sounds like a really good idea, actually. I will I will be sure to get that to into the hands of our uh, Twitter manager, who is also known by the name of Aubrey Paris. Anyway, let me tell you a little bit about the Olmec people. Now, these are really interesting people. They actually comprise the earliest known Mesoamerican civilization. And this was from 2500 to 400 BCE. Since season one, I have gotten better with these kinds of dates. Just we'll have you know. Now, these uh, Olmec people occupied tropical lowlands of current Mexican states, Veracruz and Tabasco. These people were very interesting, and there's some stuff that we know about them, but I have to say there's not a ton. One of the things I found that I just thought was kind of cool was that they were supposedly the first to practice ritual bloodletting, which is a thing that becomes very common in modern medicine. Yes, Aubrey. And, sorry, since I know you're going to predominantly debunk this one with the movie that just reminded me there is something from the film that plays with that really well do you remember when they get to the end of the movie sorry we're jumping around here they get to the end of the movie and they see the city of gold and ben's mom who's like a historian gets all excited because she's like pointing out different things she points to this sacrificial pedestal right she's all excited and and she points it out to her son ben and ben goes ah yes where they slit the throat and cut out the insides or something like that hey hey connection possibly Aubrey. nice nice fine i have to say i didn't remember that uh specific uh instance but that will come as a surprise to none of our listeners absolutely nor you. absolutely no one yeah <laughs> so people are most familiar with the olmec because of their artwork they were particularly well-known for what were called the colossal heads. Now, I got really excited when I found this. These were stone replicas of human heads that were sculpted from large basalt boulders. Human heads sculpted from boulders. Sound familiar to anyone? I'm thinking that at the museum. Is that wrong? Okay. I was thinking Mount Rushmore, but okay. <laughs> I was thinking within the realm of the current movie that we're talking about, but great, Aubrey, way to bring in more pop culture to this podcast. Gotta love it. Thank you for that contribution. Now, as a fun fact, we know, you know, we need to talk about their language here because we, we really get pulled in when Emily, to be clear, Ben's mom, not me, says that the writing on the wooden planks were Olmec. Now, it's widely debated, but it's thought that the Olmecs of San Lorenzo spoke Proto-Mixe, and the Olmecs of La Venta spoke Proto-Zoic. Ultimately, 
they think it was a mix of these Mixe and Zoquian languages that are still actually spoken in the area around where the heartland of the Olmec people would have been. Like today? Now, today, yes. So, ultimately, we need to talk about, is this mention of the Olmec people in relation to the Black Hills, is this something that was fact or fictional from this movie? Now, as I mentioned, I found some helpful stuff online from that blog post that we're going to go ahead and link to in our Twitter. This is a post by Robert Schmidt, and he basically breaks down point by point why the Olmec people could not have been associated with the writing on this plank as well as the City of Gold. So the language and culture of the Olmec people, which if we'll remember, was way down in the tropical lowlands of Mexico, is very unlikely to have reached 2,000 miles north of South Dakota, which is where the City of Gold was supposedly placed. So the entire premise of the City of Gold is actually misplaced by, like, an entire continent. So something that is important when considering whether this is fact or fiction is the fact that, you know, we're kind of talking about the city of gold a little bit, right? Gold being a prominent part of the city of. You could say that. You could say that. Yeah. Now, gold wasn't really a thing in Olmec culture. Oh. So they're probably not connected to the city of gold. There has been some evidence of symbols that people think could be writing from the Olmec people. However, these symbols don't look anything, and when I say anything, I mean anything, like what was found on the planks, which were basically hieroglyphics. Okay, so this seems pretty conclusive. Yeah, I I have to say I was very... the, the rationale behind all of these points this is another one of those cases where we can say it's fiction and pretty much the only fact about it was that the olmec were a people that existed once upon a time they were and they made big stone heads which is really the takeaway here i mean i their artwork is what they are known for. So if you can go and take a look at some Olmec artwork, I would highly recommend it. In my research, I came across some beautiful pieces from them. So I would highly recommend going and checking that out. Even if their relation to National Treasure 2 is not factual in nature, the fact that their artwork is pretty is still very much true. Now, Aubrey, I think you are going to tell us about possibly the most talked about point from the National Treasure movie franchise, I wouldn't hesitate to say, which is the President's Secret Book. So once again, for those of you like Emily with a goldfish brain, for context in the movie, this is when Ben opens a secret drawer of the Oval Office's Resolute Desk. Now he finds that the drawer is empty, save for a stamped seal where the Olmec plank should be. Now, on this seal is an eagle clutching a scroll, oddly enough, instead of clutching olive branches. Now, Riley tells the group that this symbol is indicative of the president's secret book, a book written for presidents by presidents. 
containing the nation's secrets. Now, he also claims that the existence of the book was revealed by a request of the Freedom of Information Act of 1966. Now, of course, the book turns out to be real and contains information about the missing plank in the movie. Aubrey, answer the question that we all want to know. Is the president's secret book a real thing? Can I answer you with a devious face again? I would prefer some information. Okay, well, spoiler alert, it's going to lead to a devious face. All right, so just get the emojis ready. (laughs) Emily, the existence of the president's secret book is an actual urban legend slash conspiracy theory slash whatever you like to call those sorts of could they be true? Maybe, maybe not. So some of this particular legend's plot points are directly related to the film in such a way that if you, you know, go search in the web, look for some conspiracy theory sites, you might find that the president's secret book contains info on alien life and time travel and the JFK assassination and more. You might also find that this mythical book is hidden in the Library of Congress or alternatively in hiding places at the White House like the secret panel of a statue or the secret compartment of furniture. Now, funnily enough, Emily, part of the origin of this legend of a secret book for the presidents might come from good old George Washington himself. Okay, so George Washington, who's known to have operated the Culper spy ring in New York, which helped him know about the British troops' movements during the Revolutionary War. Okay, so that is part of where the legend might have come from, but what about you know, whether or not it actually exists. The Library of Congress, for one, claims that it doesn't exist. And actually, in 2008, following the release of National Treasure 2, the Library of Congress hosted an exhibit about National Treasure 2 since, you know, it played prominently in the movie. I know, we somehow missed that. So in this exhibit, they had the props of the Book of Secrets and the Booth Diary from the movie itself. And the text associated with that exhibit stated, quote, unlike the Book of Secrets, a Booth Diary actually existed, end quote. Okay, so there's a little shade there, but I like it. I'm here for it. (laughs) Okay, the Library of Congress says, nah, not real, but Just for fun, there are some other crazy things associated with the presidents that might add to the mystique or the legend. So one of those things, for example, is the quote-unquote nuclear football, which is the briefcase that contains information and codes for nuclear launches that basically Mm -hmm. follows the president around. That's a real thing. Another one of the crazy things is the fact that Presidents have been known to leave letters and other notes to each other in the Oval Office when presidential transitions happen. So, so Emily, while we can't say for absolute certain, it's most likely that the president's secret book doesn't exist. And even if only because it's really not a very safe way to keep our nation's secrets over the centuries, right? I mean, yeah, that's true. Didn't we learn anything about historical document preservation and protection from our interview with the National Archives? <laughs> I True. Mean, having a book that's been around potentially since George Washington that everyone's just like casually flipping through reading and writing in? Peak, right? Not likely. Um, however, 
I'm going to have a moment like you where it's like, okay, maybe this could be based on something that is real. Okay. It hmm. has been speculated that the legend could also be inspired by the president's daily briefing, which is known within the national intelligence community as quote unquote, the book. So what do we know about the president's daily briefing? Well, Emily, fortunately, in 2017, a book was published entitled The President's Book of Secrets, The Untold Story of Intelligence Briefings to America's Presidents. Hmm. Right? So this book was written by former intelligence officer slash daily briefer David Price, and he basically explains how these daily briefings are developed and how they've been tailored to each president from your boy Kennedy all the way up to Obama. So could the president's secret book simply refer to these daily briefings? Or could it even refer to the briefings that a president gets when he assumes office? Well, we know that presidents receive the most top secret information that they're absolutely unable to reveal to anyone. So, you know, the type of information purportedly contained in the quote-unquote secret book would probably qualify, right? For sure. So I will I'll take this one step further. Instead of having a single book with what would be probably limited information, I mean, this is a glorified diary that we see in Book of Secrets, right? The daily briefings allow for much more robust information, and each president can receive it in modern ways based on their preferences. So according to that author Price, for example, JFK carried a short pocket-sized version, whereas President Carter asked for a printed version that has really large margins so he could write notes. And then President Obama used a secure iPad. Hmm. Yeah. So... I kind of buy this. I buy the the daily briefings argument here. But there is a part of this that we still haven't talked about yet. And that's the fact, Emily, that you mentioned Riley saying that the existence of the president's secret book was revealed by a Freedom of Information Act of 1966 request, also known as FOIA. So what about that? Well, I did some digging, and it turns out that FOIA was signed in 1966. So Riley saying that the seal was revealed by a Freedom of Information Act of 1966 request was probably just referring to the full name of the act itself. I do have one more fun fact before we, you know, try to take a stab at the ultimate fact versus fiction question. And that fun fact is that the eagle clutching the scroll is not actually a modification of the president's seal. What? No, I know, right? Actually, on the other hand, it's a modification of the great seal of the United States, which is housed at the Department of State. It's an entirely different logo, for lack of better terms. Hmm. Yeah, so... Just had to throw that out there. All right. So big question here. I think we already answered it, but fact or fiction about the president's secret book? The legend, as we said, is a real legend. So that is true in that the legend exists, but the existence of the book itself is likely fiction unless you're like me and you consider the president's daily briefing to be, quote unquote, the book. Well, Aubrey, I have to say that you made me think that it was going to be really bad, that that we really, that we were going to completely find out that this president's secret book could not have been a thing. Love 
the idea that the daily briefings are referred to as the book and that could be what it is referring to. I think that's fascinating, Aubrey. What a great find. Thank you. I mean, they say that urban legends are always based on something. So could could very well be that. So that was what we had planned for you for the in-depth round of this episode. Thank you so much for sticking through it. We hope you found it as interesting as we did, but don't worry. If you're dying for more, it's now time for the speed round. So if y'all are unfamiliar with the National Treasure Hunt speed round, you're in for a treat. We picked a handful of smaller topics that we are going to hopefully breeze through at least 18 times faster than the in-depth rounds. If not, you can always put the podcast on like two times the speed and it'll go faster. That's true. But I warn you, there is a chance that Emily will go into auctioneer voice mode, in which case you put that on two times speed, it's probably going to sound like the Illuminati. (laughs) I guess. I haven't. We're going to find out. All right. So let's, let's kick it off. Speed round. Here we go. Okay, so Aubrey, you are going to tell us about the fireworks in 1865. I said the fireworks in 1865. Tell us what you have. (laughs) Okay, well, I can't compete with that. I was really curious. It's always bugged me. Um, I don't know much about the history of fireworks, despite the fact that I am a chemist by training. I am a failure. I was like, uh, 1865, were there even fireworks then? Because, of course, at the opening of the movie which takes place in 1865. It's five days after the North won the Civil War. There are fireworks going off in the distance. So could that be possible? Well, it turns out that I'm just dumb and fireworks have been around for a really long time. Actually, fireworks just slightly similar to the ones we know today were invented in 800 AD by accident during an alchemist search for eternal life because, of course, by the year 1600, fireworks were used to celebrate military victories, religious events, or even royal celebrations. But it wasn't until the 1830s that colored fireworks became a thing. So, fact or fiction? Emily, this is fact. Wow, Aubrey. That that was great and very succinctly put. Now, Aubrey, next up you have for us the His Name is Mud expression. Please tell us more. Yeah, so when explaining why it's so important that Thomas Gates not be accused, even if he ends up being vindicated of the plan to assassinate Lincoln, Ben tells the story of the origin of this phrase. His name is Mudd. He claims it was derived from one Dr. Samuel Mudd, who was convicted of being a co-conspirator in the Lincoln assassination. While the evidence was circumstantial and Dr. Mudd was acquitted, it didn't matter. The phrase stuck. So, is this true or not? It turns out that Dr. Mudd's story is commonly attributed to this saying's origin. Dr. Mudd set Booth's leg as he did injure it during the assassination. Yeah, Emily, we're calling back to your comment about how he jumped off of the balcony at the theater and might have been limping when he left the theater for his escape. So Mudd was convicted of being Booth's co-conspirator co-conspirator despite circumstantial evidence and he was eventually pardoned but there's even a facebook group today dedicated to trying to salvage his reputation so it sounds pretty fact right emily Mm -hmm. 
Unfortunately, the expression his name is mud was first recorded in the year 1823 when quote unquote mud was a slang term for fool. And this slang dated back to the 1700s. So is it fact or fiction? Kind of both, kind of unclear. Interesting, Aubrey. Very yes. interesting. Yeah, it, it is. Um, but probably even more interesting is what you're going to talk to us about next, which is the Laboulet Lady. So, ladies and gentlemen, in case you forget, in the context of the movie, the Playfair cipher, when decoded, reads Laboulet Lady. Ben and his father interpret this to mean the Statue of Liberty in Paris because... That was the only version of Lady Liberty that Edouard Laboulet referred to as his lady. Now, obviously, this dude was French. You can tell by the name. He was a jurist, a poet, an author, and he was an anti-slavery activist, which is really important. He had the idea of strengthening the relationship between France and the United States by presenting a monument to them in 1865. He specifically thought that the recent win by the Union in the Civil War and a relationship with the United States would strengthen the cause for democracy in France. Thus, he decided that it would be pretty cool to give them the Statue of Liberty. Now, is it fact or fiction that he referred to the Statue of Liberty in Paris as La Boule Lady? Nah, bro. It literally seems like his idea was specifically about the French-American relations, so it doesn't really make sense that the one he would have referred to as his lady would have been the one that was in Paris. Ultimately, though, you'll be happy to hear, maybe it is possible because one of the Statues of Liberty that was given to Paris, and yes, I did say one of the Statues of Liberty that was given to Paris in 1889, was to commemorate the centennial of the French Revolution. Now, as someone who wanted democracy in France, it is possible that he held this particular Statue of Liberty in extremely high regards. Fun fact, this was actually one of the working models of the Statue of Liberty while the real one was being made for the United States. Huh. Apparently, there are two others in France, one at the entrance to the Musée d'Orsay, and a bronze one where the old one used to be in the Luxembourg Gardens. And then there's one in Colmar. So apparently there are more than just a few Statue of Liberties lying around. But ultimately, he did not refer to one of them in Paris as the La Boulet Lady. All right, Emily, that was extremely thorough. Thank you for that. What can you tell us about speed round topic number four, Confederate General Albert Pike? Well, based off the shade that you just gave me about the thoroughness of my last one, I'll try to make this one a little more quick. So, for the context of the movie, Mitch Wilkinson says he is descended from Confederate General Albert Pike. We later learn that Pike was the recipient of coded missives from Queen Victoria during the war. Now, General Albert Pike was a prominent member of the Freemasons. He was also just casually an author, a poet, an orator, and a jurist, because I feel like everyone was kind of a jurist at the time. He was a general, but he was a brigadier general, which is actually the lowest-ranking general officer. Ultimately, when I tried to Google Queen Victoria in relation to this dude, I came up with nothing. Like, literally nothing. 
Now, it's probably not likely for other reasons. If we go ahead and we take the hypothesis that, you know, maybe Queen Victoria was doing this stuff in secret, right? It seems unlikely that she would have been giving these coded missives to a brigadier general, as opposed to someone who was much higher ranking in the Confederate army. Now, the idea, as I commonly like to point out, possibly came from something that does exist. I did find that there is a fact that a Confederate general named Gustavus A. Myers, his maternal grandfather by the name of Moses Michael was gifted a plaque from Queen Victoria in recognition of the family's service to the British crown and cause. Now, I know it's a bit of a tenuous connection, but hey, this dude was part of the Confederate army. He was a general, and he had a connection to Queen Victoria a little further back in his bloodline. So maybe it was based on something real. All right. Yeah. Now, Aubrey, in an effort to continue to move this round along, tell us what you know about the HMS Resolute. Yeah, so I'm going to keep this as brief as possible because, spoiler alert, we're going to be going into a deep dive on the Resolute desk in a later episode where this is going to come back again. But in case you forgot, on the torch of the Statue of Liberty in Paris in National Treasure 2, we see the lines, it was in French, I'm going to say it in English, across the sea, these twins stand resolute to preserve what we are looking for, La Boulet 1876. Now, Ben immediately decodes this as HMS Resolute, a British ship lost in the Arctic in the 1800s, which he claimed was salvaged by American whalers, and then Congress sent it back to Britain. When the ship was retired, Queen Victoria had two desks made from its timbers. One is in Buckingham Palace, again, according to Benjamin Gates. Well, Emily, you're going to like the conciseness on this one because it's basically all legit. Yeah, I could leave it there, but just so you know, with a little bit more detail, the HMS Resolute was, in fact, a ship of the British Royal Navy, and it was a ship that did Arctic exploration. It became trapped in the ice and was abandoned in, I believe, 1854. It was, in fact, recovered by an American whaler, and it the boat was returned to Queen Victoria in 1856. Wow. She did have the timbers of the ship later on used to make the resolute desk which was presented to the president of the united states actually three desks were made in total though the one that the queen kept which is still part of the royal collection was simply a writing table so fact emily this is fact wow Aubrey, that was great now while we're on the topic of queen victoria what can you tell us about good old queen vicky supporting the south <laughs> Queen Vicky, huh? Well, actually, this plays really well with your note about Confederate General Pike. So in the president's book that we find in the movie, Ben learns that Queen Victoria was secretly supporting the South in the Civil War by sending Confederate General Pike information about the whereabouts of Cibola. He says that the Queen wanted to help the Confederacy because a divided America was weaker and they needed cotton from the South. So what happened in real life? I can tell you this. In 1861, Queen Victoria issued a proclamation of neutrality, saying that Britain would be staying out of the American Civil War. Now, this was pretty interesting because it wasn't a direct condemnation of the South. It wasn't saying, like, we don't recognize the South as being a real thing. So, just a side note, the North didn't love it. Also, in private, many British people 
people and businesses were helping to fund the South in the war. And the Confederacy's naval ships were even built predominantly in Liverpool. Well, Liverpool has not a great soccer team, I can say as a Manchester United fan, so that's fine. Okay, well, the Liverpool port also became the Confederacy's unofficial embassy in Britain. Ooh, Liverpool! Yeah. British sympathy for the South was said to come from their reliance on cotton and tobacco, as well as the fact that there was more anti-British sentiment in the North back in the States. So, Queen Victoria only formally condemned the Confederacy once Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863, since Great Britain had forbidden slavery all the way back in 1833, and, you know, you gotta stay consistent, right? Mm -hmm. So, Emily, fact or fiction? I'm gonna call this one fact-ish, or another one of those scenarios of fiction inspired by fact. In the film, the Queen's support was a secret. So if she was supporting the South, which her constituency was doing, she would have been doing it secretly. So um, this could be based on that uh, reality of what the British people were up to during the American Civil War. Wow. Yeah. Um, all right. I think we are on our last speed round point so emily take it home with borglum and mount rushmore and ladies and gentlemen for the last topic as aubrey said borglum and mount rushmore now for those of you who might forget in the movie president coolidge's 1924 entry in the secret book says that after finding the plank in his desk he commissioned borglum to build mount rushmore to destroy landmarks in the black hills i.e to destroy the landmarks leading to Sibula, the city of gold now, in real life, Borglum was an American sculptor. The Mount Rushmore project lasted from 1927 to 1941. Supposedly, the idea for Mount Rushmore was thought of by Doan Robinson, who was a South Dakota state historian. Now, Doan came up with the idea in the Black Hills because he wanted to stimulate tourism in the area, actually. So I would say it probably worked. During the last months of his presidency, Calvin Coolidge supported the project. However, this was in 1929. So when we're talking about fact or fiction, it seems unlikely that Coolidge was the one to tell Borglum to build Mount Rushmore. Now, when it comes to destroying the landmarks leading to Cibola, and if that portion is correct or not. However, it seems that they only chose the site to sculpt what we now know of as Mount Rushmore because the place that they originally wanted to build it at, the Needles, which is part of the Black Hills, didn't have, as Borglum put it, good enough rocks. I'm sure he said it in a better way than that, but basically these rocks were kind of a no-no for sculpting. Further, this land, the Black Hills in total, was tied to the Lakota people. It seems like in the Needles, there might have been something even more specific that was tied to the Lakota people, in, and it was considered sacred ground. Now, you might be thinking that we did end up building Mount Rushmore on the Black Hills, and that is indeed true. Wouldn't be the first time that we took something from indigenous people and we are continuously working on reparations for that, as well as acknowledgements of what we've done to their sacred grounds. Now, when it comes to whether or not this is fact or fiction, I mean, maybe it's possible. If Coolidge did commission Borglin to build Mount Rushmore in the Black Hills, it would have been a big secret. 
So it's possible he did. However, given that we know for a fact that he didn't sign the bill granting more federal funding to this project until 1929, and the location was changed from the original desired location, have to say, it's probably not true. All right, but temporally, it's at least in the same decade. All right. Well, I don't know about you, Emily, but I'm exhausted. Yes. This is a lot of history, but I hope it was also a lot of fun. I know Emily and I had plenty of fun making fun of each other throughout the past, however long we've been recording. So we hope you've enjoyed and learned something from this episode as well. Yes, indeed. So guys, before we head out, I would like to remind you to follow us on our social media accounts. As I said in the intro, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at NTHuntPodcast. You can go ahead and find our podcast for your listening ears in any of the place that you may find your podcast. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or as I like to say, for those of you who want to be a little more hipster about it, head on over to SoundCloud. You can subscribe, rate, and review us in whatever form is possible. Please do. We'd love to hear from you. And as we mentioned, we will be posting some links on Twitter. So please be following us to go ahead and check that out. And also let us know how we did. If you have some comments, questions, concerns about the history that we talked about in this episode, please do feel free to fill us in and tell us your thoughts. Yeah, and don't forget, we have another new episode coming your way. Um, about two weeks from now, if you're listening to this on the day we release, and it's our last parallel episode to season one. So we started this season with our commentary of the second movie. We've just done our historical fact and fiction. Next week, we will be doing our classic coverage of the Hollywood behind the scenes production of National Treasure 2 Book of Secrets. That's always an interesting time. So you're not going to want to miss it. Don't forget to follow us all those places Emily said. But until next time, I'm Aubrey. And I'm Emily. And thank you so much for joining us on our National Treasure Hunt. (laughs) 